biblical Christian worldview. Media missionaries where Christianity and culture collide. Welcome to Biblical Christian Worldview. Today we're going to cover three topics. The first is the parable of the elder prodigal son. The second is stand up for your country or take a knee for its injustices. And the third, Israel and the relationship with the United States, which is deteriorating rapidly. So let's get started. The parable of the elder prodigal son. Bible studies based on the parable of the prodigal son, which is found in Luke 15, 11 through 32, often focus on the youngest son. As you remember, the youngest son was given a third of his father's wealth as an inheritance. He promptly left, squandering the money to the point of having to return home starving, as his compassionate father welcomed him back. As we dig into the parable, let's begin with the younger son and end with the elder. Of course, there is much to be learned by example from the youngest son and his squandering of the inheritance. Scripture references the wise use of the resources God has given us in Proverbs 6.6, 6, 28.8, 13.22, and Matthew 25.21. There was clear humility in his words and actions as he returned to his father's house, the younger son. He asked only to be treated as one of his servants. This son in his brokenness recognized who his very life was dependent upon. Now the father. As the father saw his returning son from way off, he was compassionate and ordered food and a celebration. He showed his son the grace and love of a father for his wayward children. This is a picture of our heavenly father. He is showing us grace in the midst of our sins and failures still receiving us and still celebrating our turning away from sin and turning toward him, repentance. However, it seems clear that there's much more to learn in this timeless parable. So let's turn to the elder son. This son perhaps deserves more attention as a lesson for us today. To begin, it seems clear that Jesus was pointing to the Pharisees when he spoke of the elder son. As a firstborn, he had received two-thirds of his father's inheritance compared to the youngest son's one-third. Since the inheritance had already been distributed, verse 31 is literally true. In that verse, the father says, quote, All that is mine is yours, unquote. The Pharisees were notorious for robbing widows while being honored and well-off. Using the older son as an example, Christ was indicting the Pharisees on their superior attitude and their sense of indignation over what the father was doing for his youngest son. Similar to Jesus associating with the tax collectors and sinners, his focus was not on the rich, James 2.5, and those who are comfortable in their life. Christ was not interested in the outwardly self-righteous, but in the sinner. So what's the application for us today? The Pharisees, represented by the eldest son, rejected Christ as the Messiah. Similar to the lost today, their focus was on material wealth, acquiring it and maintaining it. They were rich from the resources of others, and they were comfortable as so many Americans are today. People have a false sense that they can earn their way to heaven, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, by doing good deeds. This is similar to the older son, trying to remind his father how much he had served him for so many years. 
this older son's anger was based on his works not bringing him his father's praise. The father in this parable responded as God responds to all of us today. He loves both the rich and the poor. However, it is the broken and repentant that are to be celebrated, for they, quote, were dead and now alive. They were lost and now found, Luke 15, 32. As with the younger brother, we have to recognize that we are lost before we can be found. Sadly, as a rich nation, America has continued to deteriorate as we become more and more like the older brother, feeling entitled, comfortable, and in no need of a supreme God to tell us what to do. Further, there's a sense that our works or our efforts will get us into heaven. Often it's not until we hit bottom, until so much we thought was secure is taken away from us, that we recognize we are not in control and we need a Savior who's also our Lord. Perhaps there are those who will look back on 2021, not just with a dread over things which were out of their control, but with a joy in that it brought them the redemption and grace that only our Father can provide. Our next topic, Israel and the U.S. relationship, which is deteriorating rapidly. The relationship between Israel and the United States is, in fact, deteriorating rapidly. Put simply, my response to that trend comes from the end of John 4.22, which says salvation is from the Jews, unquote. A LifeWay poll showed that 80% of evangelicals believe that the creation of Israel was a fulfillment of prophecy. The continuation of this prophecy will ultimately bring on the end of days. Israel became a nation in 1948, which many believe was the last major event on the prophetic calendar before the beginnings of the labor pains of the tribulation. America was instrumental in supporting a homeland for the Jews and the first to recognize Israel as an independent nation. The United States supported Israel during the famous 1967 Six-Day War. Then President Nixon came to her aid in 1973 with a massive airlift of military hardware during the Yom Kippur War. Since then, Americans have had a pro and anti-Israeli stand. These positions were based on our interpretation of Jewish, sometimes aggressive attempts at protecting their sovereign nation from those on all of its borders. In 2009, President Bush, in speaking at the Israeli parliament, stated that the, quote, bond between Israel and the U.S. runs deeper than any treaty and is grounded in the shared link to the Bible, unquote. In 2010, then-Vice President Biden and Secretary of State Hillary Clinton called the continued building of settlements on the outskirts of Jerusalem a quote-unquote insult. This level of tension between the two nations continued to build throughout the Obama presidency. In 2017, Trump announced that our embassy would be moved to Jerusalem. It opened in 2019. In that same year, Trump signed a proclamation of Israel's sovereignty over the Golan Heights. Additionally, this documented Israel's right to continue to build settlements in the West Bank. A poll taken just before Biden's election showed that Israelis favored Trump by a margin of 45% over Biden. According to an NPR article in January of 2021, Israelis are still, quote, thanking Trump calling him the best friend that Israel has ever had in the White House, unquote. 
With the election of Joe Biden, the strengthened relationship between our two countries is fading fast. For example, the same NPR article noted above is headlined, quote, Biden expected to work to repair U.S. relations with Palestinian leadership, unquote, which is a counterpoint to the Trump era. In February of 2021, White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki was asked to outline the U.S. position on Israel. This included the administration's position regarding our embassy remaining in Jerusalem. She declined to comment, saying, quote, I'm going to let those policy processes see themselves through before we give, kind of, a complete laydown of what our national security approaches will be to a range of issues, unquote. The U.S. policy on Israel is under scrutiny and revision in order to placate others in the region. A further indication of where the legislative branch of government, now fully democratic, lands on the subject of Israel was put into action in mid-February. Ilhan Omar, a second-term congresswoman, was promoted to the White House Foreign Affairs Committee in a leadership position. In the past, she has been quoted as saying, quote, Israel has hypnotized the world. May Allah awaken the people and help them see the evil doings of Israel, unquote. In 2019, even Nancy Pelosi posted a press release indicating that Omar's, quote, use of anti-Semitic tropes and prejudicial accusations about Israel supporters is deeply offensive, unquote. Omar subsequently apologized for her comments. Our Democratic Congress and presidency does not bode well for a strong Israeli partnership in the region. In January of 2021, Newsweek was quoted as saying, even more disconcerting is the anti-Semitic disposition of large swaths of the Democratic Party. Democratic activist circles are now dominated by anti-Semitic voices from the left who denounce Israel and its supporters, unquote. Finally, in a report released in late 2020 by the AJC entitled, quote, The State of Anti-Semitism in America 2020, unquote, showed that 62% of Americans believed anti-Semitism in the U.S. was a problem today. Further, 82% believed that anti-Semitism had either stayed the same or increased in the last five years. The fact that this time frame was largely during the Trump administration makes these results increasingly concerning, given the course of reversals now taking place. The future. God established a covenant with his chosen race, the Jews. Both as a nation and as individuals, we ignore that reality at our peril. Regardless of your theology on dispensationalism versus covenant theology, I think it would be dangerous to discount God's view of the Jews. The fact remains that in the Old Testament, God set aside his chosen people for his purpose. That promise will be completed as the Jewish race returns to him and becomes witnesses to the world. The Jews have been persecuted throughout history, yet their remnant continues to survive and has often thrived. Today, their amazing resilience as a nation often under siege, bigotry, and persecution is a testimony of God's continued protection. I believe we are likely in the end times, yet the United States cannot be found in Scripture. Why? I would suggest it's because we are headed for a fall. There are so many contributing factors to this. However, the greatest evidence is the growing complacency and lack of courage to stand up for what we as biblical Christians believe in. 
There seems to be little Christian backbone as we face a liberal post-Christian culture. The farther we drift, the more we are ignoring biblical principles, including honoring the Jews and their homeland, Israel. Third and final topic for today's podcast, stand up for our country or take a knee for its injustices, a detailed consideration of equity versus equality. As biblical Christians, this is a valid question. Where should we stand in this continuum of tension between, quote, stand up for your country, the slogan coined by Bill O'Reilly, or, quote, take a knee for its injustices, the visual campaign started by Colin Kaepernick? Obviously, there is so much material on this issue that many books have and will be written about it. However, after all the rhetoric and venom has been spilled, where should the true Christian stand? Equally important, how should the Christian defend their stance in such a polarized climate? A little bit of history. No one who reads articles from Biblical Christian Worldview or this podcast would be surprised at my position that leans heavily towards standing up for our country. That's because these two positions are not in opposition. Let me begin by acknowledging America has had a spotty history in human rights. It was not so long ago, January of 63, that Governor George Wallace, in his inaugural address, spoke the infamous words, quote, segregation now, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever. In June of that same year, he stood at the main auditorium door of the University of Alabama trying to block African-American students from being admitted to class. President Kennedy sent 100 National Guardsmen, remember when 100 was a lot, to overrule Wallace's blockade. There are hundreds of examples of racial prejudice that we could point to in this country. I used Wallace as an example because before his death, the former governor recanted his position. In his last term in office in 1982, Wallace won more than 90% of the black vote. The title of this brief podcast is taken from today's headlines, not those of 50 years ago. To me, there are four questions that need to be addressed by the biblical Christian. First, what does the Bible say about prejudice in all its various forms? Second, is there still prejudice in America? Third, what is a solution to this dilemma of continued injustice? Further, what should our response be to the latest terms equity versus equality? these terms being used to define solutions. And fourth, finally, as a post-Christian nation, should we stand and be proud or take a knee and be ashamed? In addition, is taking a knee truly a sign of shame, as conservatives might suggest, or is it merely a method of acknowledging social injustice and expressing a demand for reform? I would suspect both. So what does the scripture say about prejudice? The Bible's pretty clear on this subject. As individuals and as a nation, we are expected to see each other as God sees us. There's no differences. We are all, quote, one in Christ, Galatians 3.8. We are to show no partiality, James 2.1. Finally, we should look to our own sins before judging those sins of others, Matthew 7.1-5. Finally, then most importantly, we are to be kind tender-hearted, and love one another as Christ first loved us. However, we also need to acknowledge that we are God's children. We are born again through his grace and the sacrifice of his son, yet we remain sinners. 
This does not give us a license to continue in sin and the sin of prejudice, but it does acknowledge the reality on this side of the grave. So the question, is there prejudice still in America? Sadly, prejudice does remain in the U.S. Most bias has long since gone below the surface from the days of Joris Wallace and the Ku Klux Klan. However, that does not make it any less against God's word. In a litany of race-based presuppositions and practices, prejudice remains in our country. It's true that we can all point to multiple examples of quote-unquote good Samaritans in our own lives, coupled with what we have read and heard in the news. But even if there was some cosmic seesaw weighing good deeds with the bad deeds of subtle and overt discrimination, Christians need to be reminded that the heart of man is evil. Further, God does not use a seesaw when he judges mankind. If he did, we would all be attempting to work our way to heaven. We would be trying to do more good than harm to earn our spot. Biblical Christians know this is not true, regardless of what our secular society tries to promote. We are all sinners, Romans 3.23, and through our own efforts fall short of God's criteria, which is perfection for eternal life. Prejudice, whether it be through race, color, religion, sex, or national origin, will always be a part of the sin nature of man. We can try and legislate it away or ignore it or use the seesaw principle to make us feel good. However, our sin nature will never go away until we pass away. How are we as biblical Christians to deal with the reality that there will always be prejudice in America? I see four broad answers to this question. We can ignore it, as many do, or we can rationalize it away by comparing today to past saying that we're doing better, so all is well. Third, we can ride over it, destroying property, yelling at whoever will listen, and putting fear into those who disagree. Or finally, we can continue an open dialogue, rooting out those pockets of worst offenders. We can try to set both public and private standards of morality that blunt its impact. In my opinion, most Christians have taken the first approach to the solution. Prior to the last few years, we have assumed the moral high ground, saying that we don't see color anymore, that women are doing so much better in the workplace, that ageism is not a problem in this country, and that we welcome all religious and their theologies without bias. Yes, the sin of prejudice and discrimination extends far beyond issues related to African Americans. In the last few years, there has been a wave of wokeness in this country that has challenged the comfortable status quo. It's been violent, and it has brought fear. Further, it has brought the destruction of life and property. Finally, it has brought divisiveness of an unprecedented magnitude, even when compared to the 60s during the Vietnam War protests. Rationalization is the second solution to prejudice in America. However, just turning our backs on reality by saying we are doing better ignores this more hidden and continuing sin. The third solution was exemplified by Chris Cuomo, quoted as stating, Who says protests have to be peaceful? Unquote. This is not the approach biblical Christians should be taking. We recognize that sin and prejudice are not a disease that can be beaten out of mankind. Romans 12.18 In the end, open dialogue, acknowledging efforts to work on the problem in both a public and private setting, remains the best choice for progress. So what's the difference between equity and equality, and how does that fit in 
to the concept of prejudice. As individuals, we hear from our media outlets that we either need to stand up for our country or take a knee for its obvious injustices. There's no middle ground. We live in a country of polarization. Divisiveness has spread to all sectors of our society. Anger and hatred both destroy and silence our citizens. It also serves to insert government and corporate, such as Twitter, Facebook, and so forth, control over freedoms we thought were written in stone. To me, this is one of the many signs that we are headed into the end times. The reason for Biblical Christian Worldview as a website and this podcast as a source for news and opinion. Currently, divisiveness is formulating around the terms equity and equality. There are many examples of how words have been redefined, such as the word Christian or the word liberal, to better conform to a political objective. Webster defines these two words as follows. Equality, the state of being the same in the status, rights, and opportunities, an exact division. Versus equitable, the quality of being fair and impartial, justice according to natural law or right. However, the new social definitions of these words are more like equality, treating everyone the same going forward, equitable, treating people differently depending on need and historical unfairness. Legislating and speaking out against primarily racial inequality has been the focus of the more liberal factions in our country. As I indicated earlier, Christians and conservatives largely took the side of silence on the matter. Seeing this form of protest against discrimination is not going far or fast enough. Liberals have moved on from a focus on equality to an attempt at equity for the disenfranchised. It is no longer enough to provide a governmental solution in the here and now, which is equality, through the enforcement of civil rights laws and other anti-discrimination efforts. We need to accept the historical damage done to the oppressed in our nation. We need to provide sources of reapportionment of wealth to catch them up, which is equity. This includes terms like reparations and social justice. It also includes concrete initiatives such as free college tuition and universal health care. This changing perspective was made clear recently by Vice President Kamala Harris in a Twitter post where she said, So there's a big difference between equity and equality. Equality suggests, oh, everyone should get the same amount. The problem is that not everybody's starting from the same place. So if we're all getting the same amount, but you started out back there and I started out over here, we could get the same amount but you're still going to be that far back behind me. It's about giving people the resources and the support they need so that everyone can be on equal footing and then compete on an equal footing. Equitable treatment means we all end up in the same place. Newsweek published an article in early 2021 entitled Joe Biden's Use of Equity Over Equality Opens New Front in Culture War. The article noted that the word equity has appeared in nearly every executive order policy proposal speech given by the president and his top officials since inauguration. In a push toward woke equity, Biden abandons equality, unquote. Is this striving for the elusive goal of government-mandated equity over its past attempts at equality the answer? I don't think so. 
let me point out three big principles. In my opinion, biblical Christians need to address three principles as we discuss how to respond to prejudice and American injustice. The first, one can't legislate equity as a nation. Compassion and generosity, the sharing with those in need, must come from the heart of the individual, not the government. When Christians and others refer to Scripture, like Matthew 25:40 or Proverbs 19:17, as a basis for social justice, they are missing a huge point. The Bible, in these and nearly 60 other verses on the subject, refer to individual compassion between neighbors, not governmental income redistribution. Even in Acts 5, 1 through 11, during the early formation of the church, Christians were voluntarily offering gifts as each had need, quote unquote. When those who jump on Ananias and Sapphira as an example of those who died by not offering the full amount of the land they sold to the poor, one ignores the actual verses clarifying that their death was due to lying, not withholding all that they had gained. Second, one can't have a successful socialistic economy without everyone losing. Having government ownership of property and the economic output of the nation in order to provide for an equitable distribution will not work. Individuals unmotivated to strive for success because all benefits are flattened by the government does not play well with our sin nature to be successful and to prosper. Perhaps if mankind was without sin, socialism would work. However, as Christians, we recognize that that is not possible on this side of the grave. Third and finally, a nation may not be able to legislate equity, but that does not mean we should not try as individuals and as a country to set down laws and attempt equality. Our country has a checkered past in this area. We are prejudiced in many ways and will continue to be. However, that does not mean we should give up. We need to continue to thrive to build a country founded on the principle that everyone has the opportunity to be successful regardless of race, sex, religion, color, or national origin. We need to look forward to a future that is better than our past in this regard. Those amassing at our southern border recognize better than many of us that the United States remains a place of great opportunity for those willing to take advantage of it. My view is that as Americans, we need to recognize that we are sinners in need of a Savior and will always be as such. However, we also need to remind ourselves that neither riots at one extreme nor complacency at the other is a solution to the injustices our nation still faces. If taking a knee in a sports event fosters divisiveness and violence, it's not the answer. If standing up for our country is used as an excuse to ignore the injustices that still exist, we need to reject that as well. As individuals and as a nation, we need to make progress peacefully and respectfully, as Wallace finally did. Always working toward, but recognizing we will never achieve full equality, much less equity. That's all for this week's podcast. Please check us out at www.bcworldview.org. Media missionaries providing honest reporting and analysis on the intersection of contemporary issues and theology based on a biblical Christian worldview. May God bless you and protect you as you share your fate with a lost and dying world.
biblical Christian worldview. Media missionaries where Christianity and culture collide.